morning. Today's title of the sermon is Marriage and Divorce. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, Paul, Apostle Paul has been dealing with questions from the letter um, that Corinthian church has sent. And it started with the sex question last week. And that sex question is basically, is it good for people to not engage in sexual relationship, even within the marriage? And some implication is maybe celibacy is the better way of doing it. Obviously, Paul saw through their false and pseudo-spirituality in the name of spirituality. Aesthetics in, um, in Corinth were advocating anything physical nature. Sex drive was not good. So only the spiritual things. But that led to talk, Paul to talk about the marriage and singleness and divorce. And today is one of those difficult topics and hot potatoes about marriage and divorce. Let me begin with this idea. Maybe the, my heart in, in this is that on the one hand, we all have suffered from divorce one way or the other. I know some of you, many of you probably um, have parents who are divorced and came from, came from divorced family. And you know, many uncles and aunts and relatives uh, who influenced you came from that incompleteness of the divorced family. And close to our heart is some of our friends and some of us have been divorced. And from quoting from a lot of couples that I uh, counseled, there is no such a pain when, when all the guards are down that going through a divorce is one of the most excruciating pain that any human being can go through. It cuts you apart and remains you scarred sometimes for the rest of your life. And turning to the other side, we're, we're entering into the age that the marriage doesn't really have a sanctity, the holy, the sacredness of marriage. The marriage is easy and common. Uh, in the name of personality difference, and the new throwing phrase will be the irreconcilable differences is good enough to divorce anyone. So to know and have friends who are divorced that way, it might be easy, the pain is still there. It's hush because it's hard to talk about, uncomfortable topic, and you forget that your, uh, that your friend is not living with your, uh, the, his or her children, and to even ask questions and realize, very difficult. As we turn um, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 10, Paul deals with whether to marry or not, whether to divorce or not. And the context is important, so let's begin with the context question first. Where is this, what is this context in which Corinthian Christians ask this marriage and divorce question? Number one case, the first case is a, a case of married couples, a typical married couples, two believers married. And if you look at the, the Greco-Roman world, the first century cosmopolitan city of Corinth, divorce was very easy and common, just like our time. Especially among Gentiles. Jews 
on the other side, culturally, uh, because of the chosen nation, uh, the people of God mentality was there. So it was a culturally taboo. In some older generation or the old tra tra tradition of Asian country might have that similar cultural uh, value on staying in the marriage. Not necessarily the quality of marriage, but not just getting the mark of scarlet, scarlet letter, the D letter. So it was much like a Californian culture, once again. Number two case is a, a case of believer married to an unbeliever. As you can imagine, so many um, Gentiles and Greeks and even uh, the people who came from Israel, and as they married, they were unbelievers. And because of Paul's gospel, and because of the church, one of them became a Christian. So, so oftentimes, we could imagine that um, their spouses are not, un, not believers yet. In our case, it's more uh, overruling the guidance of the scripture of not to marry, not to date, and not to marry uh, an unbeliever. And I'll tell you my personal story from uh, my mom's um, family. My great-grandma was a, one of the first Korean Christians in in the history of Korean churches in there. So the legacy is strong. And then it's right after the Korean War. Um, my mom was in uh, young, aspiring uh, student at Ihua University as an English major. And the only thing that my grandma's family lacked, because she was a widow, financially very difficult. And then my dad, who came from North Korea as well, they're both originally from North Korea. And my dad was a doctor, medical doctor, who promised and lured my mom to get married and he swore that he would go to church. During the engagement, they did. Went to church a few times. And right after the wedding, he stopped going to church for almost 30, 30 40 years. So I will finish this story a little later. <laughs> what good came out of that? Um... Third case is a, a case of various kinds of singles. A uh, couple of weeks ago, we uh, actually last week talked about the uh, widows and widowers, the people who once are married and, and their spouse died and passed away. But 25, next week, we're going to actually, verse 25, we're going to actually talk about Never been married singles. The Paul, Paul calls them betrothed. Um, other translation will call them virgins. So we're going to talk about the issue that whether to marry or not marry. And that was the discerning question that Paul was dealing with. And lastly, Paul brings up without their question about this idea of pursuing spirituality by external changes. What is a general principle in all this Paul uses? Not only divorce or married, uh, marriage, but also in every level of a social status, the issue uh, and the general principle Paul gives, he's, he actually says, this is my rule for all the churches. And we're going to actually delve into that. The question this morning is very simple. What is 
the Lord's answer to, to these questions about marriage and, and divorce. What is God's answer? Number one, if married with a believer, God's answer is do not divorce your spouse. Obviously, um, we're going to talk about an exception, but in general, the marriage are meant to be permanent. Verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Did you notice that? In giving this charge to the married, Paul gives an explicit command from Lord Jesus. The question arises then in our mind. That means this is most important and the rest of it is Paul's suggestion and kind of we could disregard? No. The whole scripture, whatever that Paul is writing, is inspired by the, by the Holy Spirit, which meant the direct authority of Jesus Christ has given to apostles, the first century, the capital A apostles, the ones that, who are called by Jesus and sent to the church, and they're the living scripture during first century church. And whatever these people wrote or inspired and... Um, Guided by the Spirit. But that doesn't mean the inspiration means a dictation. Write this down. But there are times the direct revelation of Christ has been done. So point is this. It's not one is greater than the other, the other sentences but all are equally authoritative. Case in point, when you think about the Old Testament prophets, Old Testament prophets habitually said, thus saith the Lord. And he quotes what the Lord has exactly said. But what about in between? The prophets with the passion, he brings out his points to the people of Israel. Sometimes with great intensity. Is that to be regard- disregarded? No way. All scripture is inspired and equally inerrant, infallible word of God. But this much is clear. In chapter 7, entire chapter, explicit command of Jesus Christ is the only one. He said, do not divorce. I mean, we get this message already. The marriage must be so important to God. And that's the heart of God that we need to see. What's Christ's charge and command? It is that marriages are meant to be permanent. And there is a permissible ground, and the one ground of that per- permissible ground is adultery, sexual immorality as an exception. And let's go to Jesus himself and hear him directly. And before we do that, maybe we should go to Old Testament first and see God's heart about divorce. Malachi Chapter 2, verse 16. Yahweh God speaks through the, through the mouth of Malachi, the prophet. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the ESV, English Standard Version. If you look at other translation, it's easy to find a slightly different translation that says Malachi 2.16 starts with, I hate divorce, says the Lord. I think the scholars uh, looking at this sentence in this passage is very difficult to translate. And then ESV is a very trustworthy uh, translation and close to the original language and stick to the literal meaning of that. And I believe this is a proper, in, in, a, in terms of translation, better translation, more correct translation. But the spirit is still there. It's not wrong to look at other translations to use, to hear, I hate divorce. Because that's God's heart. The question, lest we become, like little kindergarten or toddler who doesn't think about things and who just sees the prohibition that God gives. No candy at midnight, no ice cream at 11 o'clock at night kind of thing, right? We should open our eyes, put our guards down and to see God's heart in this. And actually, to see God's heart, we need to see not the divorce, not divorce, but the original intent of God's design for marriage. Not my words. And let's listen to Jesus himself. In Matthew 19, verse nine, 3, 3 through 9, uh, three times. Three different places in the Gospels, Jesus shares, uh, speaks his answers, direct, clear answers about divorce, question about divorce. This is one of them. Notice how he answers. He answers with the, the nature and design of marriage rather than divorce first. Chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. When you hear the one flesh, that means a one being, not just the body. It's not sexual oneness only. The whole person becomes one. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away. Send, him, send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits Adultery. Did you see that? Two shall become one. And the God's design of that permanent oneness is actually the reflection of God's covenantal relationship with the people of God. God will continually be faithful. Our, our salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ is guaranteed not because of our strong faith, but because steadfast love of God who never gives up in the covenant 
that he made with these people. Abrahamic covenant. Do you remember that? The picture was the sun goes down and it's almost like a um, the, the dusk and maybe even the pinkish uh, sky, sun going down. And then within that little dark, getting dark moment, the Lord commands Abraham to take the cow, oxen, to pick, take it apart in two different places. So one portion of the, the body and the other portion on the other side. And it comes with the fire and goes right through it. Symbolically. You know what is it symbolizing? Whoever breaks the covenant, let the person be like this. Scary, right? But God is making his covenant. Did Israel break the covenant? Of course, so many times. But God's faithfulness. That's the grace of God. Salvation by grace of God, even in the Old Testament. That he kept his covenant. And he kept his steadfast love toward this sinful people of God. And even toward us in that sense. That oneness reflected God's covenantal relationship. So now, when God blesses us, a man and a a woman leaving their parents and coming together, cleaving and joining together as one, And God says, that is the covenant of oneness. Um, One of my heart for ministry is healthy biblical marriage. The phrase that I use, and if you have seen me officiating any kind of wedding, that I will use the prayer of blessing is let this marriage be beacon of hope in this hopeless generation about lasting love and the beauty of marriage. And this is the question that I usually ask when the premarital counseling. Um, I think it will be refreshing. I mean, still, still close to their heart because it, you know, it's. Jeff and H went through that not too long ago. But I, I am going through one couple that I'm assuring, assuring and guiding through uh, coming wedding, upcoming wedding in a month. And it's kind of interesting thing, thing that every time when I ask questions, why do you want to marry her? And with really big grin, because I love her. I'm crazy about her. So the first session, we go through family background and their life story. I tell them, I make them tell me stories from their birth to now. And obviously, there's a lot of dysfunctionalism, brokenness, as well as happiness also, too. But one noticeable thing these days is uh, they have past relationships that didn't work and that broke their heart. Or they broke somebody else's heart. And then I sit back and ask this question. So and so, what makes you think that this time it's very different? And so up until now, I had very eager answers. No one you know, stepped back. The eager answer goes like this. She is totally different. The first time I met her, I knew she was the one for me. All the relationship I had, man, this girl was just incredible. I am still crazy about her. We dated if you want, you know, four or five years, and you know, I'm still crazy about her. Um, what about those relationships you were 
almost engaged or engaged. So think about this. The cultural influence on our mind, our paradigm what marriage is, is a subjective love, sentimental romantic love that I feel. Of course it helps. But listen to this, what biblical description of marriage is, designed for marriage. It's not that you love, so you want to marry her or marry him. But it's that you covenant to marry, therefore you love. Let me say that again. Biblical concept of marriage is covenant to love this, this person, love her for the rest of my life. In old days, it was literally in, you know, uh, arranged marriage, so they didn't have this romantic dating relationships. They were fully convinced, but they're married. Why do you love her? The answer is because I married her. I married, I covenant to love her for the rest of my life. That's biblical concept. Rather than, I marry her because I love her. Sounds very good and very meaningful, right? You know why divorce is happening these days? I haven't met any couples who said, I really don't really like her and I don't love her, I don't love him. But I'm going to marry anyway. And then after a few years, you know, kind of, oh, it doesn't work. Usually, I'm crazy about her. and crazy. I'm in love with him, love with her. And two, three years of hardship. It's not the same anymore. (laughs) We're not in love anymore. We fell out of the love. Men and women of God. That we need to see the wisdom of permanence of this covenant in marriage. It is the sacredness of marriage is reflection of our covenantal relationship with God who loves us with unending love. So how about this practice before we talk about divorce? Or because one of the misconceptions, culturally speaking, is that uh, goal is not divorce. So you don't talk to her, you don't talk to him, you, you, you're like a stranger, you don't make love anymore, you don't bring flowers anymore, but stay married. Well, it helps our texts. So how about this, this practice I urge you to apply before we, begin, before we go on. If marriage is a covenant to love your spouse for the rest of your life, you should make the covenant every morning. Renew your covenant every morning. Remember, from the rising of the sun, and even more faithful that the rising sun, God's faithfulness toward is stronger and deeper. His mercies are new every day, every morning. So you get up in the morning, and you don't you you don't really have to, you know, wake her up, but in your heart, Lord, I covenant to love this woman today. I renew my covenant of love, unending love today. This morning, I wake up to love him. He annoys me sometimes, but I'm going to love him. (laughs) He doesn't pick up socks, but I'm going to love him. So let's pay attention to the marriage so that the divorce question becomes easier to understand. God's design for marriage is a covenant of relationship. 
that reflects God's covenantal relationship with unending love, with us. Number two, if married with unbeliever, who's willing to stay, who consents, Paul's word, and God's answer is the same. Do not divorce your spouse. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is, who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Paul gives the same uh, answer, but with a little slightly different reasons. The, what, what, what were they going through? Especially they have a Jewish background. Their fear is a fear of defilement by association. There's a lot of uncleanness were there. You're not supposed to touch uh, anyone who has a leprosy, anyone who is going through uh, menstruation. You're not supposed to touch. Otherwise, you become ceremonially unclean. Anyone who is a sinful prostitute, do not touch. So defilement by association. So here I, here I am, I became a Christian, and my wife and my husband is not a believer, and I sleep with him, I sleep with her. Does that make me defiled? I'm not holy as God commanded us. That's one of the excuses in rationalization. Paul's answer, it's actually the other way around. Because of you staying and remaining in marriage, the household is sanctified. Made holy doesn't mean that person automatically becomes, a, becomes saved. Not at all. But God's grace, contextually, the sacred, holy background is there for the person to enjoy. In other words, if you look at a Christian family, and one of the Christians came, I mean, spouses became a believer first. Usually what happens is that person continually prays, not only the spouse and children, but many of their relatives will come to know Christ. And for that reason, going back to my personal story, of course, I used to make fun of my, my mom and my grandma. You compromise big time. How can you let your daughter be married to a non-Christian? But God forbid God forbid This is a joke, okay? God forgives you because I came out of there. <laughs> of course, they, they go, ha-ha, right? What, but in, a, in, in all sincerity... The impact my mom and my grandma brought into our family, there was a sanctity of Christian value. And of, of course, it was almost impossible, unthinkable. My medical doctor father would become a Christian. After he retired, 70-some years, he finally come to church. And before passing, he became a believer. But it took him for a long time. So the urge and I mean the urge and um, counsel of Apostle Paul gives into that way. It is actually sanctification by association. What, what does that mean? Because we associate, that person becomes sanctified. Remember. The gospel story, the leprosy, uh, was a, not only incurable disease, but it was an unclean disease. You're not supposed to 
go near. No one's touching. Actually, they need to stay away from a stone's throw away. So they will come into the town and they will start screaming in the street, unclean, unclean, so that normal people can stay away from them. When Jesus healed the leper in the gospel story, he didn't have to touch him. If you desire, if you want to, you could make me heal. And he not only said, oh, I want to, but he touched him. Why the touch? By touching his unclean disease, did Jesus become defiled? No. The leprosy was sanctified. That's a beautiful reason Paul gives. But there is a, another side of the story, is which is another case. If married with unbeliever, who is not willing to stay, but separates, let him or go. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save her husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is an incredible thing. With the apostolic authority, Paul gives additional ground for divorce. For Jesus' case, it was a sexual immorality only. But Paul gives additional ground for, for divorce. By the way, roll, let's roll back the tape and say it this way. Some people look for these grounds. What are the biblical grounds for divorce? As if, remember the, the question, is it lawful? Kind of thing. The real question is not that. In other words, even the, in case of a sexual immorality, adultery, God doesn't command the person to divorce. Is it because of hardness of heart? God allows, permits for ground for divorce. But let me tell you this. Many people I know who went through affair because of repentance, because of healing, because of counseling, their, their marriages are strengthened. They are glorifying God together. So when I see a Christian, very legalistic Christian who says, my wife, my husband, I finally found it. This is evidence for affair. So I'm divorcing him. You see, the permissible will of God is because of our hardness. Even the giving certificate of divorce, because the male chauvinistic society divorces woman anyway, but without giving the certificate of divorce, what happens is that woman cannot even get a decent living at all without certificate of divorce. Her, her own father and mother would not receive her into her, their family, their household, because of she's supposed to be property of that person. So give her right so that she could get a job. She could live, make a living. She could go back to her folks and possibly even go back, I mean, find another marriage. So coming back to this story, this is a little different, though. Why this additional ground? Unbelieving spouse leaves. The principle is this. Our covenant with God 
is far more important than our covenant with anybody else, including our marriage. In spite of the fact that marital covenant is so esteemed high. So unbelieving spouse, forget you, I don't want to live with you anymore. And I don't want your God anymore. And Apostle Paul is saying, let him go. Let her go. You're free. God has given you peace. And notice the verse 16. However you read it, you could read it in twice, I mean, two different ways. How do you know, wife, whether you will, be, you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? One way to re- read it is a positive way. Don't try to divorce your unbelieving spouse. As long as she or he is willing to stay, how do you know? You might be able to save him. Save her. That's a positive way. The negative way is someone's leaving because of whatever the obsession of your own spirituality. I cannot be divorced. I'm going to grab that unbelieving spouse. And negative way of reading it is how do you know? You can never know you could save your unbelieving spouse. So therefore, let him go. Uh, it's one, this, this is one of those things that when you listen to this commentator, oh, I agree with this person. When you listen to this commentator, oh, equally convincing. So through the past week, I changed about three, four times. So I'm going to give you my answer right now. Well, actually, I'm going to give you a hint. Golden fee, uh, one, one of the commentators I finally landed on, has a wisdom to say this. Maybe it was a pur- purpose, purposeful for, for Paul to leave it open so that it could make application in both ways. Do not think that you could save that unbelieving. It's only up to God. So be free about letting the person go. Or the person who wants to leave and start all over again is, how do you know God might place you here? And that person might be saved by grace because of you, through you. And lastly, Paul actually goes to a general principle. And if you read it, it's kind of, uh huh, what, what, what is this relevant here? But it, it is really the general principle. Not only we could apply to our marriages, but even in our job, you know, any kind of social changes, the status or external changes. What is the general rule? A summary, I could say it this way live as God has called you rather than making external changes for people's approval or pseudo-spirituality or happiness. And notice that verse 17, 20, and 24, basically basic same thing, the repetition of three times. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called them. This is my rule for all the churches. In verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 24, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. The point the Apostle Paul is making is not, oh, just be resistant to any change. Not at all. The point is, point is, recognize that God has called you where you are. That God has a purpose for His service. You being here. And do not look for answers externally. Just because you change the status And I'm willing to talk with you, sit down with you, with some of you, 
when you think about changing jobs all the time, unless you are resistant to all change, and think about the answer that you're looking for to follow God's will wholeheartedly, to find your happiness and contentment is not on the external changes, but the internal surrender and trust in God's will. That's the point that Paul's making. But look at this. There's a three layers. It's like a Big Mac. There's a two examples in between in that. One is about circumcision, and the other one is a freedom from slavery. But the slavery system existed back then, right? Okay, so then let's start with the circumcision. The circumcision, as you're reading it, think about this. The circumcision is not only merely the physical sign of circumcision. It will be absurd to be obsessed by that. But what that signifies or what that symbolizes, it's a spiritual status or legacy. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. I wonder how they could do that. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. If neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. I think in one sense we could apply it for those of us who are born in Christian family, had never experienced really wandering around. And sometimes we, we say things like that. I wish I could be like so and so, just be wild and party a lot and come back to God and, Lord, I'm yours. And I could feel all these emotions. I don't have anything. It's like it's hunky-dory every day. <laughs> For the people who have not grown up in Christian family and who are just a secular, wild, and later adult life, they become Christian. They admire so much about the household values of Christian godly family. Oh, I wish I could... I wish I would be born in that way. That's the point Paul is making, is that God has called you. Recognize that God's... It didn't happen accidentally. God's sovereign will was there. He knows what he's doing. And he has a purpose for you. Right here, right now. And he wants to serve you with full heart. That's the point. Second example. The second patty goes in now. It's about slavery as uh, being a bond servant. Verse 21, were you a bond servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he was, let me just say quickly mention one thing. There were ways that the, the bond servants can save up outside of his household work, and he could do the special work, and then save up money, and goes to, you know, other places, like typically in Corinth, goes to the, the temple, idol, uh, so-and-so's in the name of that, and then the idol, the God, buys him. Actually, it's his money, so he's free. Or, like a Ben-Hur, movie Ben-Hur, a master saw sacrificial, uh, either saving his life or, or doing some wonderful thing, and then grants him with freedom. From this point on, you're free to go. You're a free man. And Paul is saying, take it. What, what's the point Paul is making again? It's not one way or the other. It's God. Internally, you surrender to God. And as Joseph didn't cry and wail all the time in the prison dungeon and waited until God raised him to the prime minister of Egypt, wait for God's hand. Don't try to manipulate situation. Don't try to change your social status. Maybe we could even, you know, apply for those of us who's, who's not living in a good school district 
you know, we live in Santa Ana, and then one of the concerns is for good schools. It's a world of difference, and the one the, the Irvine is expensive. But instead of manipulating false address and you know borrowing somebody else's address to to send your school kids to that school, remain where you are. God is sovereign. Trust Him. And that external change might come. So let's summarize. The key principle is repeated three times. Recognize that God has called you where you are and He wants you to serve in a unique way and faithful way. And two examples, a circumcision and freedom from slavery is spiritual status or social status. And our happiness and spirituality do not result in changing external, result from it changing external status, but internal trust and surrender to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your wisdom. And thank you for 1 Corinthians letter. We gain so much from it. We could identify the Corinthian Christians so much. Our prayer is that that you will you will change the way we think about marriage and think about divorce and think about changing our social status so easily by manipulation. And teach us to look to you internally by faith, surrendering our all and our will and our hearts, trusting the sovereign will of God and favor of God is upon us. And our prayer is that you will redeem the beauty of marriage in our church and protect us from the lures and temptations for divorce or even slight idea of breaking off from that biblical oneness. And our prayer is that we would become our church and the people of Crossway Church will become the beacon of hope and as an example of Christ's transformational power in our marriages, for lasting love and lasting marriages. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.